Now, there are three short words that are extremely useful in theology and in other spheres as well. And these are the words one, all, some. Let's apply that to space, to the world around us. One. As Christians, we have only one true home, only one motherland to which we can give total and unqualified allegiance, and that is the heavenly kingdom. Here on earth, we are always, as St. Peter says, strangers and pilgrims. The only realm where we are fully at home is the age to come. But then we say all. The divine is to be found in every place on earth without exception. As we say in the liturgy, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. The whole world is full of God's glory. The Christ and the Holy Spirit, as we say in the church hymns, are everywhere present and filling all things. Wherever we go, we meet Christ. Father Alexander Schmemann says, in his beautiful book for the life of the world the Christian is the one who wherever he or she looks sees everywhere Christ and rejoices in him there was a saying that circulated among the early Christians not recorded in the Gospels, but attributed to our Lord. Lift the stone, and you will find me. Cut the wood in two, and there am I. So, Christ is everywhere. And as Christians, we are at home everywhere. Every land, every city is sealed with God's blessing. But then having said one, and having said all, we say some. For each of us there are particular places which act in a specific and distinctive way as a sacrament of God's presence. Places which are especially blessed by the divine, filled with meaning and grace. Of course, for the church as a whole, there are places of pilgrimage, holy places such as Jerusalem, Mount Athos, Iona. Here in the North American continent, I think of Spruce Island in Alaska, where St. Herman lived. So, all around the world, there are what may be called thin places, where the wall between this world and the next 
become so thin as to be almost transparent. I don't know where the other places of pilgrimage are in the United States, perhaps you will tell me later. And then for each of us personally, there are places, some places, which have a particular meaning. The village or land where we were brought up. One, all, some. If we keep a proper balance between these three words, then we can allow for the legitimate claims of nationalism, ethnicity, patriotism in our ecclesial life without thereby obscuring the Church's Catholicity. Then we can apply those same three words, one, all, some, to, for example, the communion of saints. One, one only is holy. As we say in the liturgy, after the Lord's Prayer, when the celebrant elevates the Holy Lamb and says, Ta agia tisagis, the holy things for those who are holy, we reply, one is holy, one is Lord, Jesus Christ. So, in a sense, there is only one saint, a single holy one, in the ultimate sense, our Saviour, the incarnate Son of God. Holiness is a divine quality, never something that we possess by right, but something in which we share. <coughs> then we say, all, as St. Peter tells us, you are a holy nation. The whole of God's people is saintly. In St. Paul's letters, when he speaks of saints, he means not a group set apart, not an exception, an elite, but the total community of the baptized. All are saints. Thank you. And the same is we see in St. Paul's letters. He writes at the beginning of Romans, to all God's people in Rome who are called to be saints. In the beginning of Philippians he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Sanctity is a universal vocation. The saint is not an oddity, a curious anomaly, but a true human being, according to the image and likeness of God. The saints are normal. All are called to be saints. But then we say, some are holy. Those whom we specially commemorate by name in the church calendar. But of course, 
there are also many secret saints whose names we do not know. They are known only to God. Perhaps tonight in this church there is a secret saint sitting among us though none of us are aware of it. Least of all will the person himself or herself be aware of it. One psalm, all psalm. We can apply that, apply that also to our particular subject this evening. Clergy and laity. One and one only is a priest. Jesus Christ, the unique high priest of the new covenant, the only mediator between God and humankind. And it is Jesus Christ who is the true celebrant at every divine liturgy. As the priest says in the prayer during the hymn of the cherubim, you, that's Christ, are the one who offers and the one who is offered. Then we say, all are priests. Through baptism, through chrismation, every member of the Laos, or holy people of God, is endowed with a priestly character and participates in the high priesthood of Christ. As St. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a royal priesthood. So to be a layman is to be a consecrated person someone specially set apart for God's service. But then having said one and having said all, we say some, some are priests within the total priestly people of God. Certain persons are specially set apart through the laying on of hands, through ordination, to serve in specific ministries. One, all, some. These three words enable us to appreciate the true relationship between clergy and laity. To hold in balance the distinctive charismata of the ministerial priesthood on the one side and the ontological priesthood of the baptized on the other. I said a moment ago that to be a layman is to be a consecrated person. Let's explore this theme a little more fully. I quote once more from Father Alexander Schmemann from his essay Clergy and Laity in the Orthodox Church. 
We are accustomed to think of ordination as precisely the distinctive mark of the clergy. They are ordained, and the laity, the non-ordained Christians. But if ordination means primarily the bestowing of the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the fulfillment of our vocation as Christians and members of the Church, each layman becomes a layman, laikos, through ordination. We find it in the sacrament of holy chrism, which follows baptism. While there are two, and not just one, sacraments of entrance into the church, because if baptism restores in us our true human nature, obscured by sin, chrismation gives us the positive power and grace to be Christians, to act as Christians, to build together the Church of God and be responsible participants in the life of the Church. Let's develop here what Father Alexander says about chrismation. St. John tells us, 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all have knowledge. You have an anointing, in Greek, the word there is chrisma. So immediately, this mention of anointing should lead us to think of the second sacrament of Christian initiation. You have a chrism from the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Some manuscripts say you have all knowledge, but the basic meaning is the same and it is very clear that all the members of Christ's body are endowed with knowledge. The layman is not the one who is excluded and ill-informed. The layman is the one who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit and who therefore has knowledge, understanding of the heavenly mysteries. I quoted just now 1 John 2.20 and this leads me to think of a story of what happened to a friend of mine and it shows you must be very careful when you give references to Holy Scripture to give the right reference. This is going back to my student days. A friend of mine wanted to send congratulations to two people who were being married. And this was in the days before emails, and so he sent a telegram. And he thought he would send a scriptural text. 1 John 4.18 
Perfect love casts out fear. Then he thought he would save a little money by, because you paid for every word in the telegram, by just giving the scriptural reference and not the actual text. Unfortunately, the post office omitted the one before John, and so it became not a reference to the first epistle of John, but to the gospel of John. And if you look up John 4.18 in the Gospel, you will find it has a message not altogether appropriate for a wedding. It is the words of Christ to the Samaritan woman. <laughs> you have spoken the truth. You have had five husbands already. And he whom you now have is not your husband. So always make sure to give your exact scriptural reference. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Think of what happened to each one of us, though we don't remember it, after our baptism when we were chrismated. Each member of our body was marked with the holy mirror, the holy oil, and with the sign of the cross, the forehead, the eyes, the nostrils, the lips, the ears, the breast, the hands, the feet. And the celebrant said each time, Sragis Doreas Pnevmatos Agiu, the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there we see, following our baptism, in the sacrament of the Holy Chrism, which Father Alexander calls the ordination of the lay person, that there was a total consecration. Each member of our body was dedicated to God. What we think, what we see with our eyes, what we smell with our nostrils, what we taste with our lips, what we hear with our ears, the feelings and emotions in our heart, what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet, all that has been Sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, consecrated, dedicated to God. So that's what it means to be a lay person. Not someone excluded on the outside, but someone totally dedicated to God. You may remember the words in the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. That prophecy of Joel 
was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the first disciples and St. Peter interpreting the event quoted exactly the words of Joel and said this prophecy has now come to pass. So for us chrismation is a personal Pentecost. Each lay person is in this way a prophet, a priest, a king. Now we may ask if this is our high calling as members of the laity do the laity exercise this calling? How do they carry it out in practice? Now, I don't want to think tonight just about such things as the laity have to act as fundraisers or as organizers of social events, of cake-baking mornings and such things. Yes, that is part of the layman's task. But, the ministry of the layman extends far, far beyond that. Let's think of the role, first, of the layperson as a liturgist, then of the layperson as a guardian of holy tradition, and finally let us think of the possible vocation for lay people of acting as spiritual fathers and mothers. First then, think of the liturgy. What does the Greek word liturgia mean? Often it is explained as signifying Ergon to lau, the work of the people. That is actually, I think, bad etymology, but it is good theology, because indeed the liturgy is the work of the people. It is a shared action, something that cannot be done by one person acting alone, but can only be done by many persons acting corporately. So then, the liturgy is not something done by the clergy for the people, but it is something done by clergy and people together. Together with each other, together with Christ, the one priest. So, at the liturgy there are no spectators. There are only active participants. Sometimes, here I am being a little controversial, I am sorry that we have pews in our churches because that does produce the effect of making the People feel that they are an audience watching something that the clergy are doing up there in the sanctuary. And if, as 
was the case in orthodoxy until the second half of the 20th century, as is still the case in churches such as the Russian or Serbian church um, in their home countries, if there are no pews and people are just standing together, you do actually have a far greater feeling of togetherness, of solidarity. However, I do not expect to come back tomorrow and find all the pews have been removed from this church. Yes, a shared action, no spectators, only active participants. That's exactly what the liturgy means. And let's just look at a very few examples from the liturgy of this truth. Let's think of the dialogue that takes place at the beginning of the anaphora, the beginning of the great Eucharistic prayer, when, as you will remember, the priest blesses the people the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and the people answer and with your spirit and then the priest says let us lift up our hearts and the people answer we lift them up to the Lord let us give thanks to the Lord and the people reply it is meet and right what does this dialogue mean? What is the point of it? This is the way St. John Chrysostom explains the opening dialogue of the anaphora. As we begin the actual celebration of the dread mysteries, the priest prays for the people and the people pray for the priest. For the words, and with your spirit, mean precisely this. The Eucharistic prayer, too, is a common prayer. In Greek he says, Tartis Evkaristias Palin Kina. For the priest does not give thanks, or offer the Eucharist alone, but the whole people do so with him. For after he has taken up their words, they signify their consent by answering, it is meet and right. And only then does he begin the Eucharistic prayer. Following out St. John Chrysostom's line of thought, we may say that The priest is, as it were, asking for the people's consent that he may continue with the action of the Eucharist. Let us give thanks to the Lord, he says. Let us offer the Eucharist to the Lord. And the people say, yes indeed, let's do that. Lift up your hearts, that's exactly what we want to do, say the people. It is meet and right. They are, as it were, giving the priest permission to continue in their name and in unbroken solidarity with them with the Eucharistic prayer. 
So you can see from that opening dialogue, the, pre the people are expressing their consent to what the priest is to do, their involvement. They are not just spectators. This is their action too. Without them, the priest cannot, in the full and true sense, celebrate the divine liturgy. Everything in the liturgy is common between priest and people. Then notice the way in which the priest performs the epiclesis, the invocation of the Holy Spirit on the gifts of bread and wine. And notice how he speaks in the plural, in the prayer of the Epiclesis. He does not say I, he says we. I is not on the whole the word of the liturgy, we is the word of the liturgy. Yes, it's true that we do say, I believe, at the beginning of the creed, but that is because the creed has been introduced into the liturgy from the service of baptism. And at the baptismal service, naturally, the uh, baptized person or the godparent in her or his name says, I believe. But otherwise, hardly ever do you find the word I in the liturgy. You only find the word we. And this is notably the case at the invocation of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, we offer you this spiritual worship without shedding of blood, and we pray you, we ask and beseech you, send down your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. We, us. There you see how the priest at that crucial moment in the liturgy is closely joined with the people. All the laity are saying we. The priest alone recites the actual prayer. The people cannot do that. But the priest speaks with the people for them in union with them. And of course, the people then participate by saying, Amen. It's very significant in the high point in the Divine Liturgy how Amen comes. It comes after the words of the Last Supper of Christ, this is my body, this is my blood. We respond to the laity, Amen. And then at the end of the Epiclesis, when the celebrant has said, changing them by your Holy Spirit, the deacon says in the present day practice three times, Amen, Amen, Amen. But I think once when the prayers were all being said aloud in the hearing of the people, it would have been the whole people who would have sealed the act of consecration all together saying, Amen. 
Also in the primitive practice, after receiving communion, when the priest said, the body of Christ, the recipient answered, Amen. And Amen is not just a piece of passive assent. It is a proclamation of faith. We are so used, says Father Alexander Schmemann, to the word Amen, that we really pay no attention to it. And yet it is a crucial word. No prayer, no sacrifice, no blessing is ever given in the church without being sanctified by the Amen, which means an approval, agreement, participation. To say Amen to anything means that I make it mine, that I give my consent to it. And Amen is indeed the word of the laity in the church, expressing the function of the laity as the people of God, which freely and joyfully accepts the divine offer, sanctions it with its consent. There is really no service, no liturgy, without the Amen of those who have been ordained to serve God as community, as church. So there we see something of the active role of the lay people in the liturgy. And then we may say that the Lay people are indeed guardians of holy tradition. Recall the words of St. John that I quoted earlier. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Surely that means that every baptized and chrismated member of the church is responsible for the faith. It is not only the bishops and theologians who guard the faith. That is done by the whole people of God in solidarity. We all have knowledge, clergy and laity together, and so we are all responsible for the faith. Now, in the early church, there was an interesting ceremony, or a double ceremony rather. At a certain point before baptism, during the instruction of the catechumens, they were taught the words of the creed. I'm thinking of the Church of Rome actually and they would have been taught the words of the old Roman creed which today survives as what we know as the Apostles Creed. This was kept secret in the early church 
It would not have been put in writing for everyone to read. It was communicated in a special way to the catechumens as they came to the end of their training, the last stages before baptism. And they would learn the creed by heart. And this was known as the traditio symboli, the handing over of the symbol or the creed. The teacher, probably the bishop, handed over the text, the words of the creed, the profession of faith. And then, in baptism itself, and here we are to think of adult baptism, which was the norm in the early period, the candidate for baptism would recite the creed that he had been taught. And this was known as reditio symboli, the giving back of the symbol of the creed. So, before baptism the creed was entrusted to the candidate, and then during baptism he rendered back that which he had received in trust by proclaiming the creed and making it his own. That shows us how the faith is something for which through baptism and chrismation we are each personally responsible. We call people faithful, pisti, and often this is given rather a sentimental meaning, that they persevere through all the difficulties of the Christian life and do not give up. That is a true interpretation, but an inadequate one. To call the members of the church faithful does not just mean humble and obedient. It has a much more active and dynamic sense. It means they are responsible for the faith. Responsible to keep it true and pure. Responsible to share it with others. During the middle of the 19th century, the Eastern Patriarchs in the year 1848 issued an encyclical letter which contains a celebrated and much quoted sentence. Among us, they said, neither patriarchs nor councils could ever introduce new teaching, for the defender of religion is the very body of the church, that is, the people itself. So here the patriarchs are saying it is not just the hierarchy who are guardians of the faith. It is the whole people of God who watch over the faith. The protection of Christian dogma does not depend on any hierarchical order. 
It's guarded by the totality, the whole people of God, which is the body of Christ. The defense of the faith, the protection of it in its purity, is therefore something that devolves upon every believer. You are all of you guardians of holy tradition. Of course, the hierarchy, the bishops, have their special role to proclaim and teach the faith. That is what they are given through their consecration, a special teaching charisma. And so it is that in church councils, it is the bishops who define the faith. But it is not only the bishops who are guardians of the faith, but the whole people. We should distinguish the guardianship of tradition, which falls upon the laity, from the proclamation of tradition, which is the special task of the bishops. But even councils of bishops, when they define the faith, in order to be truly ecumenical, need to be accepted by the total body of the church. They need to be received by the lay people. And without this act of acceptance and reception, the council is not truly ecumenical. So, you, the laity, have a heavy responsibility to guard the faith. Then, I mentioned also that laypersons may act as spiritual mothers and fathers. It's not only priests, not only monks and nuns who exercise this ministry of counsel and guidance. A lay person may also be called so to act. And as well as spiritual fatherhood and spiritual motherhood, we should remember that there is such a thing as spiritual brotherhood, spiritual sisterhood. My appeal to all the laity here present tonight is this. Search your heart. May it not be that the Holy Spirit is calling you to help others who are in doubt and in distress. May it not be that each one of you is called in deep humility to offer to others a healing word. The task of spiritual guidance, yes, may be exercised especially through members of the clergy, but not exclusively so. It is the responsibility of all the baptized, all those chrismated with the gifts of the Holy Spirit to support others, to guide them. And in fact, 
We have in our Orthodox tradition the example of many people who acted as spiritual guides, though they were not in fact priests. So to end, recalling what it means to be marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, do we think often enough about our chrismation? Probably not. To sum up the work of the lay person as a liturgist, as a guardian of holy tradition, as spiritual mother, spiritual father. I would like to quote some words of someone we commemorate, I think, tomorrow, uh, St. Leo, Pope of Rome. He says, Christian, recognize your own dignity. And it is also said in the homilies attributed to St. Macarius, Christianity is not something mediocre, but a great mystery. Reflect upon your nobility. Through anointing, all of you become kings, priests, and prophets of the celestial mysteries. So that is what I ask you to carry away tonight in your hearts. Recognize your own dignity. Reflect upon your nobility. Thank you.